Imagine learning in a small group intimate setting while exploring unique European locations. EU Vet CE Experiences offers race-approved CE seminars that combine half-day lectures with time to relax and discover captivating cultures. The CE sessions are delivered in English, allowing you to elevate your career while vacationing with loved ones. Experience the perfect blend of learning and luxury at EU Vet CE Experiences interactive seminars in hand-picked European destinations. Elevate your knowledge and recharge simultaneously. Visit euveterinaryce.com to learn more. And so the passion comes from there are a significant number of veterinarians who are being told, you either change or leave. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Let these veterinarians who are brilliant minds create, mold, evolve the profession. Once again, I feel so lucky to bring you amazing people in our profession. Dr. Aaron Smiley is a clinical veterinarian in general practice, a speaker, and an advocate for making veterinary medicine better with telemedicine. Because I know you will want to, you can find more about Dr. Smiley at AaronSmileyDVM.com. I know this is a longer episode, but I promise that you will laugh, cry, and maybe even some other emotions, but you will be enlightened and thoroughly entertained. So let's get started. All right. Well, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. And you have given me permission to challenge you a little bit. So this is going to be a really cool episode. And I always start by trying to find how people got into veterinary medicine. So how did you find your way to this profession? I I grew up in rural Illinois. So a hundred miles South Chicago in the middle of a cornfield. My, I I lived a mile down the road from my grandfather and my father uh, was in the air force reserves, but was steeped in agriculture. So some of the income from, uh, to our family was in agriculture and obviously being in a rural setting, um, agriculture was a big part of our life. And my grandfather loved animal agriculture. Um, and so dry, being a mile down the road from him, he and I would just hang out. He was my buddy and we would hang out and he had uh, cattle. Um, when I was a real little guy, we had pigs. Um, I broke horses. So I was always around animal agriculture. And I, as a little guy, I had a deep desire to be uh, back on the farm with grandpa. And I mean, as a little guy, you don't even think about well, grandpa's going to pass, right? He's, he's not going to live for forever. So I, I wanted to try to find a way to come back to the farm and be able to make a living. Um, so, uh, they, you know, they always say God isn't making a whole lot more dirt in the world. So uh, purchasing more land wasn't feasible. Uh, but I thought, well, I could be a veterinarian because the veterinarian would come out at least once a year to um, vaccinate the calves, castrate the calves. So I thought, oh, that's appealing. So from an early age, uh, it was an appealing career because it incorporated medicine. So there were always more uh, questions than there were answers. That appealed to me. There was always a mystery to it. Uh, I, I love that. Uh, I love the economic opportunity. Uh, these the, the veterinarians that I saw were entrepreneurs. Uh, that appealed to me. Um, and then the ability to interact with animals was appealing. Animal lovers, we just have an affinity, I think, to be around animals uh, in, in their style of communication and and being able to read their body language. And, and that was very appealing. So the short answer is I grew up on a farm and I wanted to be a veterinarian from a young age, but that's the long answer. <laughs> yeah. And you went to the University of Illinois, so you didn't get yeah. too far from home. <laughs> nope. nope. So, I, I did. Yeah. I did Illinois uh, all eight years. 
Nice. A lifer there. That's right. (laughs) What was vet school like for you? Uh, Vet school was rough. Uh, We got married, my wife and I, who, and I, we're still married and I'm still fond of her. Um, She's still fond of me. Uh, We got married right before I started veterinary school. So August and then uh, August 2nd is when we got married. And then I started veterinary school and uh, it was tough. I probably would say not in no self-deprecation, but I wasn't the smartest guy in class. I'm still not. I can, I can fight through things, but I wasn't the smartest. And I think it was just a bit of a letdown because there was such an intense goal to get in. And so my focus was always as far as can I, can I get in? And yeah, I got in. And then I think that there was a bit of a letdown emotionally because I got in and, and the marathon needed to continue. Uh, and I was ready for everybody to sing Kumbaya and give big hugs and big kisses which that's unrealistic. And I think that the other thing that was challenging too was that I anticipated more practical application. And it's just naivete. There's so much information that you have to lay a foundation uh, of to be able to be a good clinician. And I think I was just naive at how much I didn't know. Um, so it, was, it, it wasn't the most fun that I've ever had, but we got through and I'm very, very thankful that I stuck with it. One of the silver linings of veterinary school was I was able to create a relationship with a professor, Dr. Larry Ferkins, and to this day is like a second father to me. And so even in the, the mess and, and the upsetness of fighting through something, there's, there, I think there are always blessings there. And Dr. Ferkins is definitely one of those people that came out of that experience uh, that, that I'm very, very thankful for. How did he become such a good mentor? Oh, geez. He gave a lecture that I thought was dynamic because he brought the farmer into the lecture. He gave a lecture, uh, a bacteriology lecture on APP and pigs, and he brought the dadgum farmer in. And he said, I didn't do this as well as I wanted to. Here's the farmer. He can give you his perspective. And it was this moment. He hid the farmer in the back of the room. Nobody knew that the guy was going to come down. And then we were able to answer the ask questions of the farmer. And what so appealed to me about Dr. Ferkins was he wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid of missing something. He wasn't afraid to be found out. He was very, very transparent in who he was. And that was appealing to me because I don't think that I knew who I was. And so to see this guy that was uh, 20 years my senior not be afraid uh, was super appealing. And I just flat out went into his office and I said, can I talk? And he was very gracious. Oh, sure. What are we going about? And I mean, it it quickly got into the deep end of the pool of being a I mean, it took a little while, but me saying, hey, I don't know if this is what I'm meant for. He's, and over time, I mean, he would say, you're fine. Uh, the best advice that he gave me is I would go in his office and I would hang my head and, and I would feel sorry for myself. And he'd say, now, he said, do you, do you have it all out? And I said, now what? He said, well, are you done? Have you, have you told me everything? And I said, I think so. He says, okay, you have 48 hours to feel sorry for yourself. And then I need you to stand back up. And it was advice that could sound very rigid um, and very cold, but it wasn't. It was exactly what I needed. That was really, really good advice. You've got this much time to feel sorry for yourself, and then it's time to go again. And and that helped out a lot. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I love, not only was he not afraid, but it was that he wasn't afraid to admit he wasn't perfect. Oh, gosh, that's right. That's right. And it's so empowering. And I think as professionals in a very skilled uh, environment, it's difficult when we're around each other to say, I don't know. Right. Or and not even I don't know as far as false humility, like in those areas of clinical practice, when you're just like, well, I duff that um, to be able to to exist in that space around peers who aren't going to beat you up and go, yeah, you duffed it, but we can do better. 
oh, okay. Okay, like don't 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 make it Pollyanna with me. Don't pretend like I didn't duff it, but help me get better. Yeah. Yeah, he had that great balance and mm-hmm. getting into vet school. And thank you for being so honest because yeah. I do get a lot of people who are like, oh, vet school was amazing. And I'm like, yeah. that was the hardest four years of my yeah. life. I yeah. <laughs> I did not enjoy it. Um, and so I think some of it is, like you said, we have this big goal to get into vet school. Yeah. And we do, we get there. And like you said, it's like I, I achieved this huge goal. Yeah. And all of a sudden, everybody around me is super smart. Super. And Super. right. And then you have everything seems so hard and you look yeah. around and everybody seems, or at least has the appearance that they're doing great. Yep. And so it's very easy to question your own ability oh, that's yeah, right. to, to have somebody in what oh. you see as a, a place of authority that shows it's okay not to be perfect Correct. and listen to the people around you. Correct. Oh yeah. That's awesome. Yep. Lifetime, lifetime friend, lifetime. I mean, like a second father to me. Uh, and, and so that was you know, beauty from ashes, right? So even out of the ash of, and right, and then you would say, oh, these are first world problems. And I would agree with you. I mean, my little life is, is very, very, very nice. Uh, but in my moment, in my little world, that was, that was a dark time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you, you've talked a lot about agriculture. And yeah. that, since I know what you do now, uh, yeah. it's a little bit different from agriculture. It so is. what was that transition over what you thought going in and uh, getting out? Yeah, I wanted to own a veterinary practice and I, and I wanted to work with horses because I had I, I broke horses through undergrad and, and veterinary school to help get a little extra scratch on the side. And so I thought, well, I'm good with horses. So I'm going to uh, work with horses for the rest of my life and started out uh, up in the western suburbs of Chicago doing equine ambulatory and, and loved the work, but didn't get along with the staff. Uh, the hospital manager and I uh, didn't see eye to eye, to say the least. And I knew within I mean, I left that job probably within seven months said, I got to go someplace else. We just had our first baby and it was awful. Um, just the tension that was there all the time. So I went from that job then to the Amish up in North Central Indiana, uh, which is about 180 degrees different uh, in regards to horse clientele. Like that job, it was a hard job. Uh, the Amish are very, they will give you instantaneous feedback uh, because in essence, the mentality is you don't need a degree. You just need to read. And there's some truth to that, right? The Amishmen can do a lot if he can pick up a book and read. And so I think I sometimes as professionals, we put our nose in the air a little bit with our diplomas. It's like, well, guys, all you did was read a little bit further in the book. It's like, well, yeah, there's some truth to that. So the Amish were very, very good to me in the sense of humbling me and realizing I put my pants on one leg at a time, just like everybody else. And then the economy crashed up uh, in North Central Indiana. And so the, the work dried up for a while. Because uh, the Amish make RVs and nobody was making an RV in 2008. So then we moved down to Indianapolis in a dog cat clinic, um, but there was a horse track close by. And so I was still able to touch horses while I transitioned to dog and cat and then finally made the full transition into just small animal. Those things tend to matriculate that way just because uh, it tends to be a little bit more profitable and easier to do dog cat. Yep, that makes sense. A lot of people end up there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And you became really involved in the state VMA as well. How did that kind of occur? I've always been interested as far as in the political inner workings of just government, right? Because good government is so, uh, it affects so many people's lives and it has the potential to create so much opportunity for people. So I've just always been interested in it. Even as a little kid, it was just fascinating to me. 
And so when I moved from Illinois, and, and so I've always kind of been interested, and in, in, in Illinois, I uh, was mildly politically connected, and then you move to a new state, and you're like, well, I don't know anybody over here, but I decided that to make a cold call to the Indiana Veterinary Medical Association and say, how can I serve? And uh, Lisa Perez, who is uh, the executive director, was very, very gracious. She's, she's very good at her job, and she's been there for a long time, said, oh, we'd love to have you help. And so I got plugged into a Power of 10 program, which if your state VMA has, it's super good. Uh, they take you through personality trains and basically ways to serve it. And from that initial Power of 10 group, then basically kept finding ways to serve and volunteer uh, and volunteered to be the president of the association, seeing how much impact the state VMA has on veterinary medicine. Uh, if you want to get things done in veterinary medicine, get involved at the state level because all of our practice acts are enforced by the governors. It's not, I mean, so much as the FDA, yeah, with controlled drugs and, and feed directives, but man, the bulk of what's going on is right there at the state capitol. So uh, I saw that and how much impact that I could have by volunteering um, and made lifelong friends in that organization as well. So I would encourage any of your listeners that go, oh, I'm too busy. I know you are. I know you are. I am too. But man, it makes a difference, right? Just reach out to your VMA and say, what can I do to help? Yeah. So I think this is really interesting. I don't hear a lot of people talk about getting involved in the government or or policy or state VMA that much. So can you say more to that? Like, what is truly the impact of these state VMAs? We would like to thank our sponsor, VetBadger, the all-in-one practice management software that puts relationships first. Created by working veterinary parents, VetBadger provides all the communication, team workflow, and medical management tools you need to run an efficient practice and get home to the relationships that matter most. In support of parents in VetMed, VetBadger will be offering a signed copy of the book, Pregnancy and Postpartum Considerations for the Veterinary Team by Emily Singler to everyone who registers for a demo between Mother's Day, May 12th, and Father's Day, June 16th. To register, visit vetbadger.com and find the link in the description below. And I'll give you the long answer. I think in the old days, it was a lot of community. So the state VMA had an impact with community as far as the, the veterinarians could get together once a year at the annual meeting. I think there's still a place for that, but with the connectedness of technology, it's not as important. What it is right now is how we can make our profession better from a policy level. So you say, well, what are you talking about? I don't deal with policy. I'm just a veterinarian. All right, think about all the rules and regulations that go around how you practice. Is that exactly how you'd like it to be? You say, oh, well, no, it would be better if, okay, so for example, in my never-to-be-humble opinion, I would say, man, I'd really like it if we could establish a virtual VCPR with guardrails. Now, you might disagree, and that's okay. Then at the state level, Let's take that idea and then let's churn that out. So that's, I think, what's so valuable about the state VMA is it's a smaller group where you can actually have impact. So in Indiana, if we decide, yeah, we want to change our, our um, uh, VCPR, we want to change our practice act, we can do that. We obviously have to go to the General Assembly and it's, it's a process, but we can do that. We don't have to wait for Montana to bless it. We don't have to wait for California to agree with us. Hoosiers can make decisions for Hoosiers. So uh, that's why I would encourage veterinarians to get involved at the state level, because you can have real impact 
Yeah. I, again, I, I never really thought about how much power the state VMA can have or oh, yeah. working with the state. Because now that you're talking about telehealth, it gets really confusing and overwhelming yeah, because like, where do I go for my information? It's really, yeah. really scary. So yeah. you're known for a couple of things and definitely telehealth is one of them. Yeah. So let's start with how did you get so passionate about telehealth for veterinarians? I, I saw it as an opportunity and I still do a very low hanging fruit. The passion comes from Jessica Vogelson, who is, uh, uh, I think, the chief medical director for AHA, she said one time, I didn't leave the profession, the profession left me. And I sat in the audience, I went, oh, wow, that's interesting. And I had to stew on it for a second. And she unpacked that statement, and it was so brilliant because she's right. What she was saying is she wanted to be able to change how she practiced, whether it be schedule or in the office, out of the office. I don't know what the details were, but basically... The response from the profession was, you have to do it this way or no way. That is ridiculous. And so the passion comes from there are a significant number of veterinarians who are being told, you either change or leave. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Let these veterinarians who are brilliant minds create, mold, evolve the profession so that people can continue to participate. So that's the passion. I think that we are excluding each other for no good reason, just based on tradition. That's goofy. So that's where the passion comes from. The application of telemedicine, to be honest with you, is extremely easy. So if somebody would say, oh, pick something to be passionate about. Well, I could learn about Cushing's disease. That's going to take a lot. Telemedicine super easy because veterinarians are great at it. So from the guy that didn't graduate first in his class, being opportunistic, I'm like, well, this is an easy one. Because everybody's doing it. Everybody's super good at it. So it's just an easy, easy uh, place to become a guru. I don't know if everybody would agree that they, as veterinary professionals, feel that it is easy. So <laughs> say, more, say more to why you think telehealth is easy for veterinarians and that we're good at it. All right. How many doctors are getting on the phone sometime during their practice? Uh, Eleanor Green, the former dean at Texas A&M, she said, I challenge you to find me a veterinarian who is not offering telemedicine and who doesn't create virtual VCPRs. And again, I sat in the audience around these br brilliant veterinarians and I went, well, that's a good one too. Right. Okay, so I say that it's easy because everybody's doing it. If it were extremely difficult, veterinarians would be like, I'm not doing that anymore. It's too hard. So you might have a listener that goes, well, Smiley, listen now, I'm not, I'm not offering any of that telemedicine. Then don't interact on your phone don't send any emails and for heaven's sakes, don't send a text message. And if you took that away from a practicing veterinarian, she would say, well, how do you expect me to practice if I can't pick up the phone? Smiley, you're ridiculous. I have to have telemedicine. I say, that's right, doctor. You have to have telemedicine. The generation before you did, the generation before you, we've been doing this for 150 years. So I can speculate that veterinarians are very good at it because we've done it for generations. Yeah. And I think with COVID coming, we were given telehealth as an additional thing to our role. So for a lot of people, telehealth to them didn't feel like it made their life easier. So how are we going to really make this work inside of a practice? All right, that is brilliant. And you're right. 
I think that telemed became this burden for the veterinary profession because we tried to uh, uh, do what the humans do. You say, well, what are you talking about, Smiley? Okay, in human health, to be reimbursed, there are rules about synchronous versus asynchronous. You have to have a synchronous interaction to be reimbursed on the human side from the third party, from the insurance, from the government, from whomever. We don't have that burden. We're a cash business for, for all intents and purposes. Okay. So inside of that, we can do it as an asynchronous event. That's so much easier for the veterinarian. And you think, well, what are you talking about? Well, if I'm a human physician, I can schedule a time for another human to verbally talk to me on a live screen. Show me there. I have a cut right here. It hurts right here. You get the dog to tell you that. You get the horse to tell you that. And you say, well, smiley, I tell you what, that's why I don't like that telemedicine. Those animals can't talk. You're right. They can't talk. But what I can do is get an asynchronous video of that dog walking, of that lesion. It makes it far easier to interact with the client and the patient when it's not a synchronous event. So long story longer, if veterinary medicine would have understood the application of asynchronous videos, pictures, messaging at the beginning of the pandemic, I don't think that we would have seen telemedicine become such a burden. So when you say asynchronous, you mean that a pet owner will watch their dog have a seizure-like event. They will record yep. it yep. and then send it to the veterinarian to observe. That's perfect. And most veterinarians, this makes sense to them. If you say email, doctor, do you ever send emails? Oh, I send so many emails. I can't stand it. I send emails all the time, Dr. Smiley. Yeah, me too. I get that. That's asynchronous. Oh, do you ever do asynchronous telemedicine? Well, I send emails, doctor. Oh, you're very good at asynchronous telemedicine. Now, culturally, what we can take advantage of is Americans communicate via asynchronous text messaging. You say, now, what do you mean? Well, it's just this moment in time. We don't pick up the phone near as often as we send a text. So I'll get doctors that say, oh, Smiley, now you're that tech wizard. I'm not into technology. I say, well, doctor, do you ever send a text? Well, yeah, I love getting pictures of my grandkids. They're so cute. You want to see one? Oh, I love them too. Yep, playing baseball. Love that. Doctor, can you send a text reply? Oh, sure, Smiley, I can send a text reply. Oh, well, you can do this with your client. And for the most part, then the veterinarian, there's just a light bulb that goes on. The penny drops and they go, oh, I guess I can do this with a client. Yeah, yeah. if I had a dollar for every time I got a poop picture, <laughs> I, 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 think I would be making a lot of money. So, <laughs> right. And that's the idea in so much as uh, get then transition your free telemedicine into paid telemedicine. Get, get, get charged for your, charge for your poop pictures. I had to put a screen protector on my phone. So like when you look at it, it, it black because I was on an airplane one time looking at poop pictures. And I'm like, I can't have this guy looking at poop pictures with me. So I had to get a screen protector. So it mirrors out. I don't know. That might start up some really interesting conversations, but um, <laughs> maybe yeah. not ones you want on a plane. <laughs> no, correct. What are you doing, buddy? <laughs> so, so, I mean, obviously we do this all the time. I, I think everybody can agree. They've gotten some type of image in a text yeah. message. So how do we really implement this into business where we are uh, actually in a smart way, yeah. putting this into the business? Okay. The first thing, and I'm going to speak from the point of a hypocrite. Okay. So here comes chief hypocrite. Number one, you got to put up healthy boundaries. Got to put, so before you get going on this one, you got to put up healthy boundaries, whatever they look like for you. They're going to be different for you versus me, but establish healthy boundaries so that you don't walk into the deep end of the swimming pool without some waders on. 
Okay, so healthy boundaries. When are you going to turn it on? When are you going to turn it off? What's this going to look like in your calendar? Don't be naive that uh, you won't drown. You got to learn how to swim. Okay, so healthy boundaries first. Then the second thing as far as how to integrate it is make sure you have a nurse or a technician that can help you. Most of the work done on telemedicine is my nursing team. They do all the work in the clinic anyway. Why would it be any different with telehealth? So what it looks like is the client sends a text to the same number that they call. They can call 765-644-3628, or they can send a text. And when they send a text, it goes to a nurse, and then she triages it. They decide, she and the client decide whether or not we need to involve the doctor, and then I'm involved in the case. The nurse summarizes the case. Hey, Dr. Spine, two-year-old puppy uh, got into the trash can, has some loose stool. Okay, great. Here's a picture. Uh, here's a video of the dog moving around, and here's a picture of the poop. Great. I interact with the client a few times, diagnose, prescribe, maybe recommend for the animal to come in. And then the nurse takes care of uh, uh, filling the prescription and or uh, scheduling the animal to come in. Gotcha. Uh, speaking of boundaries, uh, you know, kind of going back to <laughs> going back to we've in, tried to implement implement telehealth and it yeah. felt like it was just added work. Yeah. So how do we establish those boundaries where our clients aren't expecting like an immediate response? Cause that's, I mean, mm. oh my goodness, we are oh. in a time of, I need an answer immediately. Yep. So, so how do you set this up where the client understands the expectations oh. and we can best help the patient in the end? Have a nurse interact with the client. So I think that's very wise. Uh, now, one thing to consider is, Clients are accustomed to asynchronous communication because that's how they communicate almost exclusively in the rest of their life. So don't think you have to teach a horse how to walk. That foal knows how to walk. There's no doctor out there going, come on, little filly, get up. God just made her to get up. So in that same regard, we're not necessarily hardwired into asynchronous communication. But as humans right now at this moment in time, we're very, very good at it. So don't, don't overthink that aspect. But I involve a nurse. So that, and then the nurse says she has a little cut and paste that she puts into the text message string that says, okay, there will be a charge with this. This will be asynchronous. Dr. Smiley will involve, he's seeing other patients and he will respond in an asynchronous fashion. There might be gaps. So I think it's wise to set expectations for the client so they know what's going on. When we talk about not adding more work, what I'll do with the doctor who wants to implement this is I'll say, first we do an inventory. I say, Dr. Smith, what current telemedicine do you offer? And she usually says, well, none. That's why I'm here. Smiley, tell me. I say, okay, how many emails are you sending? Oy vey, she says, nine o'clock at night, I'm doing the emails. And I said, oh, no. And then she, I said, how many phone calls do you return? Oh, I hate it. At the end of the day, the staff goes home. I'm on the phone. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, so we're going to substitute that for this. Oh, so now listen, I, instead of staying two hours late at the end of the day returning phone calls, I'm sending messages during the day. Now, pick your poison. I haven't met a doctor yet that would rather stay two hours after work. She would much rather engage with that during her workday. There's probably a veterinarian that says, oh, no, I would much rather take it real, real slow during the day so I can stay two hours later. That's not typical, but it, it could happen. So I don't say that this is going to be less work. It's just better work. Yeah. One thing that I like about it as long as the hospital is uh, is working with you, and maybe you can speak to that in a minute as well, is 
how it's flexible, right? There are some ways to adapt how you like to work and to make this work as well. So speaking of trying to get buy-in from the hospital, let's say you've convinced a veterinarian. I'm all for it. I'm a millennial. I get this, but convince my boss. (laughs) How, how, how do you do that? Okay, so with your boss, it would depend, and this sounds a little strange. I think that the boss, if the boss is a veterinarian, it's different than if the boss is a non-veterinarian, okay? So if the boss is a veterinarian and she is more senior than you, I would ask her if she would like more flexibility as her career comes to an end. And she's going to say, now what? What are you talking about? And you'll say, now, doctor, don't you love to go on those bike rides out in the mountains of Colorado? She says, oh, I do. We have so much fun. And I, oh, what would happen if you could do a little bit of veterinary medicine so you could have more time out in Colorado? Oh, she'd say a dream, just a dream. Here in Indiana, a lot of guys like to go up to Michigan. So beautiful up there. What would happen, doctor, if you could spend more time up there at your cabin? And he'd say, now tell me more. Okay, so that's how I would introduce it to a senior veterinarian is you can do this in retirement make some side money, but not necessarily have to be in the building. You can be with your grandkids. You can be in the cabin. That's very appealing to people at the end of their career. If you have a non-veterinarian who you're trying to encourage to do this, you say, listen, I, as the doctor who make all the money in the practice, want more flexibility. This would be very, very nice for you to figure out as a benefit to me. And the non-veterinarian who's your boss, her whole goal is to make you happy. Because the veterinarian, without the veterinarian, guess how much of this happens? Zero. How many dogs get spayed without the veterinarian? How many horses get diagnosed with lameness? Zero. In this industry, right, wrong, or indifferent, everything pivots on the doctor. Everything. And in this moment in time, we're seeing that with, with it being so difficult to uh, retain and recruit veterinarians. Why? Well, because they're the linchpin. Everything revolves around the doctor. So I think in the non-veterinarian owner, that's a pretty easy sell. You just go, doctor, this would, or non-doctor, hey boss, this would be very nice for me. And they're going to say, yes, we'd love to make you happy, doctor. What can we do for you? (laughs) It is nice to have some leverage. (laughs) Yeah, correct. (laughs) So maybe you've gotten this before. So if someone said, well, this is all fine and dandy. You're in a state that gives you a lot of freedoms with telehealth. I'm in a state that I don't have a lot of legal freedom to use telehealth. What do I do if I am one of those states with a lot of legal restrictions? Start with virtual referral. Okay, now the Veterinary Virtual Care Association has a beautiful map on their website. So vvca.org that spells out the regulations for each state. Very, very useful. So as I talk, put this all through the filter of you as the doctor have to educate yourself right? I'm not your attorney or anything like that. Okay. So with that being said, virtual referral, where the generalist, the specialist, and the client are all in the same asynchronous conversation is endorsed by AHA and the AVMA in their 2021 telemedicine guidelines. I don't know of any state that prohibits the generalist, the specialist, and the client being in the same asynchronous conversation. So if you're in a state with really, really rigorous Uh, regulations, or you're just a little nervous about legal implications, start with virtual referral. Where we use virtual referral a lot is with ophthalmology. Uh, Last week, I don't want to exaggerate, I want to say last week or the week before, we had two Horner's cases. And the first one came in and the third eyelid was coming up on one eye and then the other eye. And 
Well, I have an ophthalmologist, Dr. Ben Bergstrom, down in Nashville, who will do virtual referral for me. So I told the owner, I'm like, uh, I, I can refer you physically to an ophthalmologist, but I have an ophthalmologist that can do virtual referral. They go, oh my gosh, that's amazing because Dr. Bergstrom could respond within 24 or 48 hours. They knew that referral to a physical ophthalmologist was gonna be significantly longer. They said, oh, Dr. Smiley, this is fantastic. So we all got in an asynchronous conversation. Dr. Bergstrom evaluated, he asked for photos and videos. The client supplied some of those, I supplied some of those. We did phenylephrine in the eye, the third eyelid resolved. Dr. Ben Bergstrom then could educate the client and educate me, and then he charged the client directly. And you say, oh, well, that's weird. No, it, it's, it's peculiar. It, it's different than tradition, but it just makes sense to me. So if you're one of these doctors that just wants to put a toe in the water, do virtual referral. Oh, my gosh. And then what you could do is have more security in the medicine. Well, nobody's going to mess up an eye. I got an ophthalmologist looking at this, right? Uh, well, how do I monetize this? Well, I'm still making money on the phenylephrine test. I'm still making money when I take the pressures. I'm still making money on the stain. Right. The only difference is the client is paying the specialist directly. Yep. And I actually, I have friends who are specialists yeah. and as a way, cause they said they wanted a different work-life balance. Right. They have an entire practice that is actually consultation, virtual consultation. Okay. So the difference, so with the whole VCPR thing, the thing that's different that not, and what you can do as a general practitioner and the listeners that are specialists, Encourage each other to charge the client directly and get the client involved in the asynchronous conversation. Because right now there are a whole lot of companies, and it's a good idea, that are charging for B to C, where if the client's A, the generalist is B, the specialist is C. We're going to charge the doctors. So the specialist is going to charge the generalist. Okay, not a bad idea, but it's so different than tradition, right? Specialists really don't like to charge the general practitioner. Specialists have very little problem charging the client. So as you're in conversation with each other, the next time you're at a meeting, say to the specialist, hey, why don't we just invite the client? You can charge her. Oh, I like that. Tell me more. But it's, it, that's a unique, it's a, it's a unique idea. So I, I'm a specialist. I'm a nutritionist. We do tell, we've been doing telehealth forever. Forever. Um, <laughs> forever. Um, but we actually, we get really nervous uh, and I'm yeah. sure a lot of veterinarians feel like, oh, I just don't want to get sued. I don't want to get sued. <laughs> and so we actually get really nervous yeah. going directly to the client because we don't have the official VCPR, Correct. the general practice veterinarian does. Correct. So speak to that. How, all how right. does so that all if work? You, okay. So AHA and AVMA endorse the, this engagement. So you that, who carries all the legal liability, the general practitioner does because the general practitioner has the VCPR. He has seen that animal. So let's say you and I are doing a nutrition consult. The owner comes in and says, oh, Dr. Smiley, I'd really like to feed raw food. I've done a lot of research and we should do raw food. I go, oh my gosh, we're doing this again. Well, and then I bring in doctors. I say, hey, I've got a nutritionist that can do virtual referral. Well, tell me more, the client says. I said, well, here, this is how it works. It's an asynchronous conversation. Dr. Sprinkle will ask you questions. I can supply her with uh, test results, any of that kind of stuff. And then she can walk you through texting videos, pictures, the best nutrition for your dog. And then she'll charge you directly. Now, Dr. Sprinkle doesn't have any of the liability of the VCPR because I have that. But I am very confident that you are far more educated in nutrition than I am. So I'm not going to come back and go, boy, that Dr. Sprinkle, she doesn't know carbohydrates. What are you talking about, Smiley? You can't even spell carbohydrate. 
right? So in that regard, because it's endorsed by the AVMA, and I know of no state that doesn't allow it, it is a brilliant way. So Dr. Sprinkle, you could say with your nutrition consulting, all you have to do is involve the general practitioner. And then the general practitioner makes money on the CBC chem, right? So you'd say, hey guys, I'm good with this, but you know what? Let's send a panel down to Texas A&M for this, this chronic diarrhea and this cat. Yeah, we're gonna add some fiber, but man, I'd really like to get that GI panel from Texas A&M. Okay, who's making money on that? I am as the general practitioner. Now you have your consulting fee that you're gonna charge the client, but now all of a sudden the legal nervousness and ramifications are completely mitigated. Yeah. And I was actually just talking to someone who's been out of vet school for one year okay. and she's still terrified. She still doesn't have her confidence. Yeah. So do you see telehealth being a way to help confidence in veterinarians? Because like you just said to me, yeah. that makes the the general practice veterinarian, you're still the go-to. Oh, you're right. still you're still guiding the client into the best ways to get recommendations yep. and care for that animal. So yep. how have you seen this as being helpful to building confidence maybe in veterinarians? Okay, so I'll tell you about me. So those two Horner's dogs that we saw, I saw a third one. I didn't have to refer it because I knew what was going on. This is a true story. And they always say everything comes in groups of three. And it's like, well, you're just superstitious, doctor. Good, honest to goodness. So two Horner's dogs, I referred them. Well, the third one that came in had unilateral crusty nose, third eye lit up on the one side. I'm like, oh, I've already got the phenylephrine, Horner's dog. Wait. Okay, it was. So it gave me more confidence because I was educated by the specialist. Now, I could have referred the third case. And, and somebody would say, well, Smiley, you should have been able to do that after the first one. Yeah, you're probably right. I should have. But so, yes, I think that there's a whole lot of just education, which is so much, what's so much fun about our, our, our industry is I can always learn one more thing. So this idea of virtual referral, and I know it's fun for the specialists because I talk to them. They love to educate general practitioners. I mean, their eyes just, woo, this is so much fun. So in that regard, absolutely, I think that it builds confidence, even in a guy who graduated more than a year ago, but maybe isn't as secure in his ophthalmology. Uh, it's a great way to build confidence. Yeah, I love that. You were a founding board member of the yeah. Veterinary Virtual Care Association that you mentioned. You've been talking about telehealth for, over, I think, over five years. Is that right? Yeah, At probably. Way probably. Be way before the, the pandemic. Way before the so, pandemic. And, and you're saying we've been doing this technically for oh, yeah. a, a, almost 150 years, as long as we've had yeah. a phone, right? Why are we not more advanced in this area do you feel oh, man i think that it's i think that we're tradition is such a difficult thing it's so scary tradition is so scary to to buck because tradition is so known so even in my clinical practice if i do what i did yesterday that works i don't have to it takes so so much less mental effort uh, when i talk to about telehealth and and making a, a virtual vcpr with other doctors that are hesitant to go there, if they'll sit down and if we have a 10 minute conversation, at the end of 10 minutes, they're just like, oh yeah, I get what you're saying. Uh, in the state of Indiana, we went through and we assembled a very diverse panel that uh, met over, I think four to six months to discuss and debate this very issue. And at the end, and we had dairy practitioners, we had swine practitioners, we had small animal people, we had industry people, we had government people. And at the end of that six month committee task force 
what the unanimous recommendation was is we need to change the VCPR in Indiana to allow it to be virtual. And you go, wow, that seems really progressive. Yeah, and in a state like Indiana that's, for the most part, quite conservative, when the doctors met and hashed out the idea, they're like, well, this just makes sense. It provides more access to care. The doctors are very good at this. So to answer your question, why haven't we gotten further? Tradition is hard to buck. It's a little bit scary. And then the other thing that we're talking about with telemedicine is there are economic models that haven't yet been discovered. So we're talking about people's livelihood. This is how doctors put shoes on their kids' feet. And so there's, I think, a fear of, well, am I going to have to figure out a new economic model? You might, but I know, too, that in, in you know, the turn of the last century, most veterinarians were working on horses. Oh, gosh, here comes the automobile. We don't need any veterinarians. Well, that couldn't be more uh, less true. Well, what did veterinarians do? They're smart. They're ingenious people that pivoted and go, hey, these Americans really like dogs and cats. And so what did we do? We all pivoted into small animal medicine. So I think that it is, we are not giving ourselves enough credit as a profession to say the only way we can generate revenue is that old model. I say, oh, doctor, you're much, much, you're much more ingenious than that. There are so many economic opportunities that are available to us as a profession that we just haven't tapped into. Speaking of economic model, I yeah. was just listening to a, a podcast this morning and they were talking about telehealth and yeah. they presented the question on the difference between implementing telehealth into yeah. the clinic yeah. versus all these platforms that yeah. are coming out with, you know, we're a telehealth platform. Yeah. So what are your thoughts about those two, whether it's versus or, or how do you feel about those? I say both. I say both. I think that there needs to be guardrails, but a telehealth platform is a doctor that's remote that will always be remote. I don't have much experience with that, right? So I'm doing telehealth as an augment to my in. So I can always tell the person, well, bring Fido in. So there's this level of security that I have because I can always get an in-person appointment. Okay, if you're a pure telehealth plug, I think there needs to be guardrails. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell had a great podcast about control drugs and the difference between, I think, the state of Massachusetts and maybe the state of New York, and I might be getting that ready because uh, at California because they required physicians to do duplicates. So if I was going to give a control drug, I had to have a duplicate prescription or, or triplicate, and one of them went to the state. And they found in the uh, uh, jurisdictions that required triplicate, and this was back in the 70s, and I'm murdering the story, but back in the 70s, the states that required triplicate, the physicians were up at arms. They're like, this is such a hassle. This is such a pain. But the amount of opioids that were prescribed were significantly less. Well, the physician thought about the fact that this triplicate was going to live for forever in some warehouse and the state could come back and audit them. All right. So with that being said, in these pure telemedicine places, I think there definitely needs to be guardrails. I think it would be foolish for the profession to say, oh, this is the wild, wild west. Do whatever you want. No, 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 no. Let's allow a virtual VCPR, but let's put guidelines on it. Uh, what does it look like to prescribe antibiotics virtually? Is that appropriate? I don't know. Uh, control drugs. I don't think that is. I would say no. I would say no to that. But antibiotics, I think we really need to look at that and go, okay, how is that appropriate? I don't know. So I would much prefer the profession to start to argue and argue be the best word, argue about the guidelines, not whether or not the doctor has the expertise to engage with a client and their animal. To me, that is that the idea that a veterinarian is not skilled enough 
to be able to know if she can engage with a client and an animal remotely, I find it almost offensive, almost offensive. And it offends my sensibilities because it is so rampant in our profession. I mean, think about this for a second. Everybody's doing this. So everybody, in essence, everybody's just winking and nodding at each other going, yeah, I mean, you do it, but you just don't talk about it. Well, that's garbage. If we're doing it and we think it's good for the profession, bring it into the sunlight, bring it out. Let's talk about doing a remote VCPR better. Why are we pretending like we're not doing this? I mean, the other analogy that comes to me is everybody speeds on the interstate. Well, what did they do in the state of Indiana? They raised the speed limit. So, right, I mean, we say, okay, and they did a lot of research and going, okay, we don't think that five miles more in the speed limit is going to cause an increase in accidents on the freeway. Okay, raise the speed limit. Policy follows practice. The practice in veterinary medicine is rampant telemedicine and creating virtual VCPRs. So I would like to see the policy follow that practice. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious. So you said that your perspective is more the in-clinic, implementing yes. telehealth in-clinic, of course, um, bringing in maybe a third-party uh, yeah. referral. But right. do veterinarians in clinic worry that veterinarians in telehealth will take huh. away their business? Oh, yes. I think that that's a chief. I think that's a chief concern. And to be frank, I think that there's a pharmacy worry. Okay, so you think about it as far as in clinical practice, and I'm just going to come from the, the small animal perspective. If that dog has gastritis and has diarrhea, the client overwhelmingly wants to see an in-person veterinarian because then they want medicines prescribed right now. So if I'm strictly a telehealth play, the fastest way that I can get that medication to the client is to drop ship. Okay, FedEx can get it there overnight, which is incredible. That's the fastest we can get it there. In my experience, the client is not satisfied with that. She just cleaned up poop on the carpet. She wants meds now. Okay, so when we look at the customer, the customer isn't going to be that. In, she won't be curious about getting a, a telehealth consult for these immediate problems. All right. So uh, I, I think that there is a concern about losing pharmacy revenue. And frankly, and this might be controversial, I think that the more pharmacy we get out of the veterinary clinic, the less conflict of interest there is. And you say, mm -hmm. oh, Dr. Smiley, that's not good. We, we have revenue from that. That's how you pay your bills. I know it is, but there's a reason that they took the pharmacy out of the physician's office because there's an inherent conflict of interest. Doctor, why are you prescribing that drug? Well, because I make money on it. All right, there's nothing wrong with making money. Nobody's doing anything illegal. I'm just saying it sometimes can get a little bit slippery. So I, what my hope is, is as a profession, we get ingenious about discovering new economic models to be able to enrich the profession that aren't so dependent on the pharmacy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, and I, and I think you're right. I think telehealth is going to be a way where we can really implement a lot of different other economic ways for our practice. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're ultimately serving the pet and the pet owner better. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, and, and from my entrepreneurial bent, it's exciting and fun because it basically gives veterinarians a new chance to be entrepreneurs. So the veterinarian who wants a different work life, okay, free her up to be able to create economic opportunity. 
why are we, li- and, and, and some things will win and some will lose. I'm not saying everybody's going to be a success at this. I think that it's stifling when we don't let our, our colleagues and our peers invent, discover, explore. Oh no, you can't do that. Why not? Is it bad for the pet? No, no, no. It's not bad for the pet. Is it, is it bad for the client? No, no, no. The client wants this. Well, who's it bad for? Well, it's bad for tradition. Tradition. We don't do that for tradition. All right, doctor. Let's figure out how to create a virtual VCPR with guidelines so we can open up a lot of innovation. Okay, now I have to sing the, no, I'm not going to sing for you, but the Fiddler <laughs> on the Roof song, Tradition. Yeah, that's right. How did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. Tradition! Just went into my head there. Uh, well, I I love this conversation. You are, I love your enthusiasm. The okay. other thing I know you for is being a really amazing speaker. So I, I loved hearing the story. So how did you become such a good, or come into speaking? Uh, that's very kind of you. That's a high compliment. Uh, I, I My mother wrote books. She was an author uh, and she was a speaker. And, and, and we would sometimes, and I don't know child labor laws, but she would have, I have two brothers, a big brother and a little brother, or older brother and a younger brother. And she would sometimes take us along in these smaller venues and have us either sing or perform as like a little a Von Trapp family. Um, so from a little guy, I knew I was comfortable being on stage. And then I was able to watch my mother and she was so skilled, so skilled at what she did, where it just, I, there was a sense of like, well, this is normal. You just get up and you perform. That was, that was the template and the confidence that I had. And I mean, I'm an extrovert on steroids. And so there's very rarely a microphone or a stage that that doesn't have my name on it. So I get a kick out of it. Um, And I think that there's a responsibility to when you get on, on the stage to be able to entertain and educate. And, and the people that have been able to entertain and educate me, whether it's because they're boisterous or because they're very quiet but they're just intense, whatever their way of entertaining and educating, those are stories and lessons that I can then take with me as I leave the, uh, the conference or whatever. So, so I think that it's such a valuable resource for our profession to be able to marry education and entertainment uh, because, because then it can be retained. So I guess in the moments where it's altruistic, I hope that I can make a difference in the profession by incorporating a little bit of entertainment into the education of what we're talking about so that we can actually uh, change the profession for the better. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, before we run out of time, I'm going to yeah. wrap up with our, our final four questions. Um, yeah, I'm I prepared. Actually gonna... I oh. prepared because I've oh. listened to your podcast. So I said, okay, okay. I think I All right, I'm ready. Well, uh, actually, I was going to change it up. So. Oh, no. Okay, change it up. I'm ready. <laughs> just, just the first one. Because okay. I want to kind of come back full circle. Because at the beginning, you talked about a mentor who showed yeah. you that you it is okay to not be perfect. Yeah, so that's my, right. my first question for you is what is one thing you are continuing to work on for yourself? Oh, listening, listening, <laughs> listening. Can I hear what you're saying? Uh, I'm so enthralled with the sound of my own voice that I have to be very intentional of listening. And my wife is such a good listener and I respect her so much in engaging with her and having a relationship with her. I've taken steps towards being a better listener, but that's something that I, I want to get better at. I really do because people are so fascinating and, and they have worth, they have value. 
And so for me to be motivated to listen because, and I always say, it's because God loves them, right? They're valuable because God loves them, not because they have a lot of money, not because they don't have any teeth, not because they smell like a billy goat, right? They're valuable because they're a human. And so uh, I want to try to get better and better to listen. I like that. All right. Now you can work on the ones you've prepared. Oh. So. <laughs> what is something on your bucket list? All right. I want to visit every presidential museum. I, oh. I, yes. So we've, I've done something as a little kid when we would go on road trips, my father would like interstate 70 is good because you can hit the Truman and then you can hit the Eisenhower one. They're both on I-70. They're going out to Colorado. So I want to do each uh, presidential museum. That's a good one. What is a moment of simple joy? I think it's when in the clinic, when people smile, when I come into the room. So, right. So the nurse goes in she gets a history. She does all the hard work. And then I come in and their countenance changes because I come into the room and sometimes it busts me up. I don't let the client see it, but I'm like, oh, they're happy to see me. And somehow I just, I always get taken aback. Like, oh, they came in here to see me like me. You were waiting on me. And that to me is just a joy that it still catches me off guard. Oh, Dr. Spy, I'm so happy to see you. And it just catches me off guard. I'm like, I don't know why, but okay, let's do this. <laughs> oh, I, I like that one. I hope other veterinarians and, and even the vet tech, I, I think I Yo. still get excited to see a veterinary technician. Yeah, absolutely. As the veterinarian or the, or the pet That's or right. my pet in. <laughs> That's right. All right. This is a hard one for a lot of people. If okay. you could create one law that everyone oh. had to follow, what would your law be? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, and this is a good one. And this is a tough one. I would say golden rule, right? I mean, the golden rule is so hard. It's easy for me to, to, to point my finger at other people. But if you could, uh, that'd be the one. Just do unto others as you would do unto yourself. And it's, I suppose this side of heaven will never get there. But and maybe that is what heaven is, right? Heaven is when that when that happens. So, but that that's probably the rule I'd create. How poetic. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, what is something you are most grateful for? Oh, geez. Uh, my family, my wife, my wife. And uh, I tend, it doesn't take me much to get emotional, but I'm most grateful for her. She's so smart and I get such a kick out of her. Um, and uh, we've known each other since second grade. And I think that it, which is peculiar, right? So uh, we started dating when I was 16 years old and, and it's just a, it's a grace that was shown to me that I was able to find somebody so young that is just a, a fun person to be around and constantly pushes to make things better. Like, so her striving for excellence is contagious. I don't know. I, she's just, she's, I get a big kick out of her. She's great. Oh, well, to Mrs. Smiley. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, that was perfect. Thank you. This has been the Vet Life Reimagined podcast. Whether you are listening or watching on YouTube, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please make sure you are subscribed to catch all these amazing people in our profession. Also, send this episode to someone you think who would appreciate it. Have a recommendation for someone who would be a good guest? Please reach out on LinkedIn, Instagram, or Facebook. There aren't that many Dr. Sprinkles. Until next time, vet lifers. Tradition. Tradition.